Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. We made it! Thanks to your support, we've raised a full year's worth of recording and production for Let It Roll. Thank you so much. Today, Nate and Ed Legg continue their discussion of Michelangelo Matos's Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year, with a look at the second British invasion, which saw UK artists like The Police, Culture Club, The Eurythmics, and The Human League present in the US charts at levels not seen since the 1960s heyday of The Beatles and The Rolling Stones. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. Or should I say 80s roll? That's right. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and we're bringing back the free bird yeller, Ed Legg, to continue our discussion of Michelangelo Matos's Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year. And today... We're going to talk about a chapter that Matos calls Britain Rocks America Again, Newsweek, January 23rd, 1984. So he's referencing a Newsweek cover story to start the show. Ed, tell the youngins what Newsweek was in the 80s. Newsweek was, I guess, I would say like, uh, you know, whatever grown people look toward for news these days. I mean, Newsweek and Time were the two weekly uh, American news weeklies, and I, I'm being redundant, but um, but it was like MSNBC or uh, CNN. Um, I'm showing a little bias here, but it, they were they were the, author- the news authorities, and they supposedly had their finger on the pulse, like when they both had Bruce Springsteen on the cover in 1975, so... At the um, time, yeah. Yes. Yeah. At the time. So, yeah, they had they had something like the Sports Illustrated curse, which Sports Illustrated from, was another one of these magazines that was a huge deal in the 60s, 70s, 80s. SI Motors started in the 50s. But it was a big, big deal. Everybody had them. Everybody looked at them. They kept around the house for at least a week, you know, and sometimes you'd keep a stack yeah. of them, like a yeah. dentist's office. And uh, I can remember the... You know, time. We were a time family, so time would come in the mail, and I felt like I was catching up with the world. You know, I mean, all we had at the time was yeah. cable TV, and that was pretty new. And and you know, I spent lots of summers and stuff in places without cable. So, yeah, these weekly news magazines yeah. were a big deal. And this particular issue on January twenty third, nineteen eighty four, had a split cover, had two subjects on it, which was very rare for Newsweek. They had Annie Lennox of the Eurythmics and Boy George of the Country Club, Culture Club both on the cover 
they weren't posing together. They were photoshopped in there or whatever. However, they probably just used scissors, uh, scissors and tape yeah. um, <laughs> to make the cover. It's an extremely bright, vivid color. I urge everybody to look it up on Google. It, it's it's very telling, and especially now in 2023 with this trans panic that's going on, you'd have to think that Marjorie Taylor Greene was being triggered as a very young child by this cover. I mean, born George and Eddie. Maybe this. Oh, maybe this is the origin story. Her, her, she happened to be walking into a, a 7-Eleven or in, in Georgia. They had them. They were called Magic Markets. She walked in yeah. one at, at a very young age and saw this, and this is how it all got started. This could be it. This could be the, the <laughs> formative damage that was done to, to so many delicate snowflakes. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I can remember the time. This was... It was really weird. The second British invasion really snuck up on people. Partly it was because it was driven by MTV through just the coincidence of British artists having started to make videos under the influence of the Beatles and Queen and, and shows like Top of the Pops and Ready, Steady, Go. Like they, they discovered, hey, if you know if you make a film video, you don't have to go to all the shows. You can just send the video. And so it became just part of the packaging that British bands did by the early 80s. So when MTV started, that meant they desperately needed videos if they were going to play videos 24 hours a day and acts like Kaja Gugu and Madness, who otherwise would never, ever, ever have gotten on American radio or gotten any kind of exposure in America, got massive play on MTV, which led to massive radio play, which led to massive success. So it was this um, big phenomenon, but it wasn't like punk or new wave. It was an air of new wave, but it wasn't controversial and in your face except in the ways that it was like boy george was not johnny rotten he was not spitting venom and nobody was throwing up in the you know air- airport waiting lodge like the sex whistles infamously did uh before starting their 1978 american tour but still boy george was as he says he wasn't wearing drag but he was dressing very sexually ambiguously he was wearing tons of makeup he was wearing the sort of moo-moo house frau coats and, and going back and watching the um, Karma Chameleon video was really striking. I had completely forgotten that they had set it in post-Civil War American South. Although the costume, you know, it says very clearly 1870 because they don't want to be celebrating slavery, I guess. But the clothes are very clearly 1840s and, and mm-hmm. you know, the Stephen Foster era. And it's, it's such a weird choice. And it's also weird that nobody commented on it at the time. I mean... You know, it's, it's like that old Palm Olive commercial where the, where the woman gets to sit down with her friend at the restaurant and her friend has a little bowl of green liquid and she yeah. puts her friend's hands in it, you know, and uh, you're yeah. soaking in it right now. And that's kind of there what we go. were. We were soaking <laughs> in this second British invasion. And um, the article, the Newsweek article, cites a week, June 16th, 1983, when there are 18 UK singles or singles of origin in England in the top 40 of, in America, which broke a record from 1965, the first British invasion mm-hmm. of co- pop culture. And seven of the top 10 hit singles were Brits. You had The Police. And we've talked, I think I've mentioned in every episode so far in the series, but The Police were massive, massive, massive at this point in time. They were wrapping up this endless synchronicity world tour that took up all of 83. And I don't know if it went on into 84 or not, but it was just this colossal, colossal stadium tour. And you can't overstate how big The Police were in this period. Uh, you also had Eddie Grant, who a veteran um, R&B pop, slash reggae guy uh, of Caribbean origin, but, you know, been working in England for many years by that point. You had the Kinks, who are a straight-up 60s band, still going strong. This was their last wave of major hits. Then you had stuff like Kajagugu and Madness that I've already mentioned, who were totally new, who were coming out of uh, two different scenes. Kajagugu was coming out of, I guess, the new romantic scene, and Madness was coming out of this first ska revival um, that they had in Britain in the late 70s, early 80s. Then you had... Duran Duran and Culture Club were these massive new acts. And, you know, Duran Duran is is much more rock-oriented. It's five macho hetero dudes, although they wear, like, a lot of makeup and they feather their hair and they're extremely glamorous. But they rock a little harder than than some of these other bands. And then Culture Club is I, – I really enjoyed going back and listening to Culture Club a lot. It was, it was definitely the treat of the week, I think, because I'd never really – gotten past the 
basic pop hooks of their material, which are endless. And Boy George is a great singer. But the band is really good and doing some really interesting things. And and Matos has a playlist on Spotify with songs from this. And he points out that one of the clubs that they were coming out of uh, had a really unique playlist. Um, and one of those acts was uh, James Black and the Whites and or the Contortions, which is this crazy James Brown, Captain Beefheart influenced free jazz influenced it was called no wave it was sustained in new york in the late 70s brian eno put out a compilation album it later spawns you know groups like sonic youth and live skull and swans but it, it was an odd choice it, it wasn't an odd choice it was surprising to me that that was one of the big influences on culture club but it was so audible and and it really enhanced my appreciation of what they were doing but let's go ahead and hear some culture club this is karma chameleon a big hit from 1983 And that was the irresistible Karma Chameleon from Culture Club. And again, video set in what claims to be post-war American South, but it looks like pre-Civil War American South. Very odd choice, especially since one of the members was black. Um, So I have no idea what they thought they were doing there. Um, Let's see. Another another big factor that that is mentioned in this Newsweek article, it was written by Jim Miller, who was a 60s era guy who, you know, somebody in his 30s or 40s trying to, to figure out what's going on with the scene of younger people. Goes to London, interviews DJ John Peel, who's one of the big players in this. Peel had been a pirate radio DJ in the 60s. Then he moved on to the BBC in the early 70s after they killed the pirates. And dude was a one-man indie revolution. He would uh, have live features with bands recording live at the BBC and broadcasting and it just became dear guru for any band aspiring to hypnotist to want to get on the John Peel show. And if he did pick you out, as he did with bands like the Smiths and Napalm Death and you know Pink Floyd and and on and on and on, just had a golden touch, a golden ear. And um, you know, he was he was a big factor on the scene. Malcolm McLaren, who had originally been the Sex Pistols manager, was a big factor on the scene. He was at this mm-hmm. point solo. He had managed Bow Wow Wow and then gone solo with the help of Trevor Horn, who's going to be a big factor in this episode. And then he also interviewed Jeff Travis of Rough Trade Records, which was a indie record label in Britain and also a massive indie distributor. And later on, that's going to hurt the British scene when Rough Trade collapsed. But through the mid 80s, uh, Rough Trade's the lifeblood of the, the British, um, British scene. And here's a quote. Here's how. Miller ended his article on this second British invasion. He says, forget about nostalgia for the earnest pop optimism of the 60s and face the era of cramped hopes and wild style. Here comes the rock and roll of 1984, which is a self-conscious Orwell reference. What's your take on Miller's take on this? Did you identify, were you kind of in that same spot culturally as him at the time? Well, to an extent, but I had been without without trying, um, without wanting to. I had been versed, and um, and it, it's interesting that the, the the timing and the fact that he mentions the peak being, you know, six months before this this cover story ran, and you know when you and I started talking about this this series, um, I just kept going back to 1983 and how much 1983 set up 1984 it 1984 is not a not a continuation in any way well in some ways but but they they are really different years and um 83 um was leavening for 84 and you know when i think of annie when i think of eurythmics i think of the summer of 83 um that's when i kept um hearing um sweet dreams and then um and Boy George, I heard a lot uh, in the spring. 
and like you you even mentioned that he was not he wasn't threatening um something about him was and i mean maybe it was because he looked sad i always thought he was a sad you know not a sad clown sad and a, you know, like a clown, clown. <laughs> yeah i mean just he he and his music's very both of them are very soulful and yeah and, yeah um you know, They're and, right there with and then it's part of this British neo soul movement. Yeah, absolutely. It's so true where I hear things and I think, God, I've heard that before. And it feels like I heard it in, you know, in the early seventies. And, um, but, but I think, you know, I think he, he Miller probably had a bigger challenge than me because I was hearing way less urban and, um, hard rock and, you know, the, album oriented rock radio than I ever had, you know, since I'd been a teenager because of where I lived. I lived in a small to medium market and they were really, they were hitting this stuff heavy. This was their bread and butter. And then when I did, when I did get to see, you know, Friday night videos, I don't think came out until later in 83. So in 83, when I did get to see videos, it was, you know, visiting my parents in, in Atlanta or a friend's house or, somewhere that had MTV and then I'm getting a seeing and you're exactly right about madness and, um, Eddie Grant. I mean, that electric Avenue was that summer of 83 was just playing just all the time, but, but it's all a setup and what, you know, thinking about this episode, um, what strikes me is how many there were it. Yes. 84 was just this blockbuster steroidal year, but, 83 had a bunch of, you know, kind of the first swell was starting in 83, like with Huey Lewis and, you know, Michael, um, culture club. I mean, you know, these two bands came on and, and made a huge, the clash splash, had a a huge splash. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. The clash Good broke point. through and was, was touring arenas and, and opening for the who and stadiums and, you know, oh, that's the, right. the clash had really yeah. gotten themselves to a point where, they were next in line for that kind of police level success and, and managed yeah. to quickly fire. Uh, Joe Strummer brought back his original manager, Bernie Rhodes and, and let Bernie talk him into firing uh, topper headman, Mick Jones, the two most powerful talented musicians in punk history. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, yeah. And, uh, cut the crap. I think cut the crap will come up. Their 1985 album will come up later in the book, but, Matos has some good an- analysis of the relationship of the second British invasion to punk. He said punk had been the great leveler, not necessarily yeah. antique, anti-technique or willfully consciously crude, but simply about change. The new pop developed mm-hmm. naturally out of the punk assault. A gaggle of brightly colored, unabashedly hooky one-time punks who decided to go for the main chance while still utilizing what they learned in the DIY trenches. So, because punk encouraged people to do that, put out your own record, start your own band, start your own touring network, you know, uh, it taught people how to do things for themselves, which meant a whole generation of artists learned a lot more about the business and how to ask for more and, and be, play a stronger hand in the business. So one of the first was Adam Ant. And Matos has a great capsule description. It's the first to make the switch from failed punk rocker to successful teen idol. And, uh, and yeah, Adam Ant, epitomized that new romantic neo-pirate style, very much uh, an influence on um, Johnny Depp's uh, Pirates of the Caribbean character, <laughs> which is kind of a cross between Adam Ant and Keith Richards. And and, mm-hmm. and Miller and, and Matos also talk about the, the role of these British music weeklies, bi-weeklies and monthlies. You had New, new, Mel- new Music Express, Melody Maker Sounds and Record... Record Mirror and Number One are all coming out weekly. Then you had Smash Hits, which was kind of a thumb in the eye to those things. It was it was every other week. It was super glossy and slick. It was a big publication, um, and it led to an environment where people like Adam Ant could be very open about what they were doing. I'm selling out. I'm selling records. I'm I'm a pop star. I'm an artist. And so you know the great cultural critic Simon Frith described it as the commercial process itself has become the canvas on which they play their artistic games. Did you get that vibe at the time? Was that apparent to you watching this stuff on video that these people were very self-consciously manipulating the process or did it seem more naive? 100%. 100%. I mean, for whatever reason, Duran Duran, it seems like, just appeared 
and in February of 83 and immediately had the most over the top produced. And I'd been watching, um, I had been watching MTV from June until February of June, 82 to February because of where I worked. And then I changed jobs, moved to this small market, no MTV anymore, except occasional. And the occasional is always Duran Duran who, Yes. You know, I know that I know they were I know they were big and I don't I know that I don't appreciate them, especially as after listening to one of your recent episodes. I don't appreciate them as I should. I always liked Andy Taylor's guitar playing and I really loved um, Power Station, but they were yeah. they were off putting. I'm you know, maybe because I was in my 20s and I wasn't a teen boy anymore. You know, they but um, but girl. yes, that's. The, Good point, and it was it, it was it definitely was more visual, and and plastique. I want to say more synthetic, more synthesizers, yeah. you know, stuff like that. And, and garish but, makeup but, and everything else. Yes, tell me this though: Do you think of this as glam, or or is it glam without the machismo that that the original glam had? It's definitely people who are raised on glam. I mean, all these artists were tweens and teens in the early 70s when David Bowie and T-Rex and Slade and yes. Mud and yeah. Sweet were all at their peak. And point. to me, it's pretty clear that, that people like George, uh, Boy George and, and Annie Lennox were much more influenced by the David Bowie side of things than, say, the Slade or um, yes. Sweet side of things. Yeah. So that, that they, you know, Glam was one of those scenes that, you know, when your leaders are like David Bowie and T-Rex are flirting with androgyny so heavily, I think it. you can have then macho bands in the scene without becoming a macho scene. So I would definitely say these people yeah. were heirs of glam, but because of the glam metal scene in Hollywood in the 80s, we don't call them that because they're mm-hmm. very different from Motley Crue. But let's go ahead and hear our second song. This is Human Leagues, Don't You Want Me, another highlight of the summer of 83. was the human leagues don't you want me which is a massive hit in 1983 and that was to me that eurythmics song was very much a signal that something was going on i started listening to a particular rock station out of carlsbad new mexico that summer which i spent with my brother who's a forest ranger because they were playing the the kinks paranoia will destroy you which i really liked although now i see it as a rewrite of their first song so i don't like it as much but at the time I hadn't heard all day and all the night. Uh, and so, you know, it was this mass hit. And then I started listening to that station, and that's where I hear Eurythmics for the first time. That's where I hear Little Red Corvette for the first time by Prince. And, you know, by the end of the summer, I was totally primed and ready uh, to go back to school and be in the video MTV land and, and catch up on, on what these cats were doing. And, and you know, that. I was working as a waitress at a cocktail bar line. It's just so vivid and evocative in the way they have the two singers going back and forth. I don't know. I love the human league. This, all of the singles from this week are just killer. I mean, they knew how to make pop records in 1982, 83, 84 Britain, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. And then, um, the next thing we need to cover is this club Blitz, where Mato says the second British invasion's cockatoo-like visual sensibility took flight. It opened in 1979, definitely in the wake of the punk movement and the peak of post-punk. Rusty Egan was a promoter. DJ Steve Strange, or Steve Strange was the DJ. He was also the founder of Visage, which is one of the apocal new romantic bands, although they never made it big in the U.S., so that kind of distorts things because steve strange to me ought to be a big part of this conversation and he's pretty minor and um mato sums up blitz though pretty brilliantly he compares it to an ad which is a british 
magazine around the time of punk that said, you know, had a diagram of a G chord. And then the next one was, you know, here's a chord. It said, and then here's another one. And here's a third. And then it said, go form your own band. And, and Mata says that Blitz, in effect, said, here's a look. Here's another. Here's a third. Now be a star. And so, you know, all these groups spanned out about Lay and, uh, you know, Visage. All these guys were. Blitz was the cauldron in which they were cooked and catalyzed and perfected into their final form, the form that conquered America. And the playlist, um, you had lots of craft work, German uh, Euro disco. You had Gina X, more German Euro disco. You had Giorgio Moroder, Moroder, the king of Euro disco. You had No Wave from the Z label and always Bowie. And this is another one of my pet theories. I really feel like Bowie architected all the 70s and early 80s music revolutions coming out of Britain that that the punk originators tended to downplay their Bowie influence because he was a rock star and he was kind of in a foul odor around this time because he <laughs> allegedly got photographed throwing a sig heil and he was getting out of his limo although that one appears to be just a poorly timed photo as he was trying to wait with somebody but he also was smoking so much cocaine and went totally crazy and declared himself a fascist and stuff so there was a reason i don't want to associate with bowie even though he was clearly the guy laying out their entire aesthetic and showing them the various directions you could go from a glam slash punk hard rock base like he had with the spiders of mars and then go take that into all this experimentation with synthesizers and new song forms and lots of instrumentals and atmosphere and working with Higgy Pop and Brian Eno and really pointing the way forward. Um, but I should go back and talk about the Human League. They're from Sheffield, not London. Uh, they were one of the original punk era electronic bands. And then Martin Ware and Ian Craig Marsh quit to form Heaven 17. That left Phil Oakley, the sole original member. So he goes out and recruits two chicks he sees at the club, Susan Ann Sully and Joanne Catherall. He literally recruited them based solely on the looks. He'd never heard him sing. So he ended up quite lucky that they had some pipes on him. And in no time, their album Dare has four UK top tens. Um, and they're trying to do their follow-up. And literally two through three producers, Martin Rushett, who had done the first album, washes out pretty early on. Chris Thomas of uh, Pretenders and Sex Pistols fame came in, cut some tracks left. So you, Pat, and finished it. And um, it, the, the drama that Matos tries to bring out is they had to work that hard to follow up their head album because once you have a head album like that, you kind of are boxed in and the only thing you can do is continue to try to uh, have that kind of success. And, and he mentions the case of ABC who had a massive hit with Lexicon of Love, produced by Trevor Horn. Then they pull a move. I, I think Moby's the only one I, I can think of who's followed this move. Their second album, Beauty Stab, was just guitar-oriented, super ugly and alienated, and it flopped hard. And it really reminds me of Moby in the 90s when he tried to make a punk album. And, um, you know, it just it wasn't happening. So... Um, <laughs> But the, another big thing that Matos brings out that was interesting was that the American press took all these groups for the spawn of the Bay City Rollers rather than the Sex Pistols. And that definitely impacted how they were treated critically. In Britain, they were taken somewhat seriously because they came out of this very serious, very revolutionary scene. But American media had essentially rejected punk like a pig heart trying to be transplanted into a human body. And... and <laughs> You know, between that and corporate radio, like no punk is going to play. They let the cars through, the knack through Blondie, and that was about it. Bands like the Sussex and Ramones were just banished from radio forever. And so it um, kind of removed the context from the second wave of British invaders. Did you connect them to punk at the time, or were you thinking they were just pop kids? No, you know, I... I... It, while you're talking, I'm I'm thinking to myself: were, Did they were all the the rock writers people who had just skipped punk, or they were busy covering rock acts um, when punk was was happening? Like in '79, '79 was you know, and you've talked about before how that was that year that 
everything went south for the music business. But that was really when we, me and my posse, who'd been going to every REO um, concert and Ted Nugent and Farner and everything else, started getting in a new wave. We were of drinking age, so we could we could actually go to clubs and hear bands like that, but not at all. I mean, I I never thought of the Bay City Rollers as um as I I wonder why they why they would think that. And it's interesting because the first thing I thought of when I was uh, looking at that cover of Newsweek again was Bowie. That's what it reminded me of first. And and I think you're you're spot on that um, he just was he showed how to be an artist, how to how to how to um, turn your music and you know how to grow your music artfully and um, or artistically. So you know, no, I actually saw it well, and then we. I don't know. Does he ever? Does Matos ever mention Flock of Seagulls? Because really, we must at least don't mention them chapter. once. <laughs> yeah, he does. Yeah, they were definitely. <laughs> yeah, let me pull up the index and just make sure. But I do believe that but the, Flock of Seagulls but the music, has to be discussed. It was a, it was a dark element. And no, you, you know, I felt like I don't see Flock know, of Seagulls in the index. You don't. <laughs> I don't. I mean, maybe we'll keep an eye out. We'll, we'll watch these next chapters. Maybe he didn't get them in the index, but I do not see lots of seagulls in there. But yeah, they were definitely a big part of it. They they, they were kind of the band that became the punchline in a way of, of, you know, if you want to make fun of somebody for having new wave hair, you'd call them flock of seagulls or whatever. And yes, yes, it, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and this style the new romantic style i mean if you wore this stuff on the streets you got attention i can remember my ex-father-in-law in in dallas in the 80s seeing somebody dressed up in full-on adamant regalia and he he nudged my then brother-in-law and was like hey check out the human cockatoo and the guy heard him and goes uh Smooth moves, Mr. Green Jeans and because he was wearing green pants (laughs) yeah i mean it got a lot of the same resistance punk got, but not the violence of the resistance so that they were allowed on radio and they were uh, unstoppable. They were on MTV and they were, you know, and, and Duran Duran is, is just a classic example. They came out of Birmingham, another uh, non-London northern town, and were very self-conscious and very aware of what they were doing. They wanted good-looking guys. They wanted to have a look. They wanted to be popular. Their plan was... Hammersmith Odeon in 82, Headline Wembley in 83, Headline Madison Square Garden in 84, and they pulled it off. And it's hard not to root for a band that, you know, marks it, calls it shots like that and succeeds. So let's hear from a sponsor. We come back, we'll talk about the rest of the big British second invasion of 1983-1984. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. 
we're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And now we come to the section where he really dives into the on the Eurythmics. He, you know, he calls Andy Lennox a stunning hybrid of Joan Baez and Aretha Franklin. And I think he's right about that. If you listen to... 60s folk rock, you hear these singers like Judy Collins, and you know, you get into Grace Slick, you've got Mama Cass, Michelle Phillips at the Mamas and the Papas. There was this, you get Sandy Denny out of the British folk rock scene with Fairport Convention, also sang with Led Zeppelin on Battle of Evermore. But the female white folkies had developed a really powerful soprano style, and Annie Lennox's big secret was she combined that with Aretha Franklin style soul singing. And, you know, Annie Lennox was just one of these people, like it was obvious she could sing. (laughs) There was no getting around it. You know, watch one video and you're like, whoa, this chick can sing. And and it goes in their backstory with they originally, she and she met Dave Stewart. They, become a couple they form a band called the tourists they have a couple of uk top tens in the late 70s and i went back and listened to some tourists and they have their moments but you can definitely hear why you're the next needed to happen um and they when they broke up the band and it's ju- just boiled it down to dave and annie who then break up but stay together as as musical partners even though they break up as a couple cut their first album in the garden with connie plank who's the legendary um Krautrock producer. There's a great documentary about it I watched recently. And uh, it, you know, there's no clearer statement of purpose than working with somebody who's the guy from the Krautrock scene. And that's, um, you know, they were very open about what they were doing and, and they combined this soul pop aspect to it. And yeah, I mean, and then they're just massive. How do you rank these groups like between? Eurythmics, Culture Club, Duran Duran, what, what, which one's made the biggest impact on you? Well, in that year, 83, they certainly were something different. And, and, and really, it was, it was good music. It was very moody. I find it, I find myself thinking, you know, it was, it had a lot more synthesizer. So it, and even her voice, it doesn't, and I don't mean her voice sounds processed, but that's how, what a great singer she is. Um, it, it fit the, it fit that whole style. And, um, and it was kind of, I almost want to say grim, you know, it was, it was, you know, when I always think of that, this, the way the guys, the looks on the faces of the guys in flock of seagulls, you know, that to me sets the, the t- that's the tone. Um, like you wake up in a, from a nightmare and these guys are, you're on an operating table and these guys are the doctors, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, with that white, that, that fluorescent light, you know, that's what the, that, yeah. it was definitely, you know, they were coming from punk and, you know, they keep, they always bring, I'd never think about the Reagan years in this way but it actually is true that we were veering away from from i mean the 60s even though the 60s had been over for 10 years or more than 10 years of course um this something different was happening and and you've got rock stars talking about how hip margaret thatcher is because we're paying less taxes um yeah yeah you know, because guys, who cares i heard people say stuff like that about reagan too in the summer of yeah, 83 yeah. i'm and and i just found myself thinking you know yeah okay and and i knew that the the only way reagan could be defeated in 84 was if the country fell into something like 1939 or 1929 you know there was yeah. there was there was no way cuz things had gotten better compared to i don't know when 
when he started. Compared to the bulk years when when Jimmy Carter's uh, Federal Reserve chair raised interest rates to like 21%, which is just... Yeah. You could not buy yeah. money in the late 70s uh, as American business. And so it was a brutal period. And that's one of the things that they refer to, Miller refers to in that Newsweek article, that this is a, a new music for an era of constrained hopes. And yeah, it, yeah. Uh, the 80s were brutal. And I think I think what I'm trying to convey with this series, with you and I, you know, you were in your 20s in this period. I was a teenager. So many of the people who really loved the 80s were really young kids in this period of time. So they have this really gauzy, soft focus look back on it. I mean, you know, if you're playing in your mom's living room in front of the TV with your Masters of the Universe toys and listen to this great music, of course you're going to think of this era as a golden age because you weren't out in the street getting called you know, homophobic slurs because you were trying to dress what you thought was cool. And, um, you know, it was an ugly time. And I think it's very important to remember this is the Thatcher and Reagan era at its peak. And, uh, yeah, it was an ugly time. Then he goes in from the Eurythmics, he starts talking about the Smiths, who were kind of a surprise. I'd usually think of them as a little later, but I, but I was wrong about that. I, I first heard about them in 85, I think. But but because and then the first time I read about them, Rolling Stone did their own cover story on the new British invasion. And they had a big article about like, here's 10 bands who don't mess with synthesizers. Like, here's 10 rock and roll guitar bands. And it had like the cult in there and the Bluebells and uh, Big Country, I think, was one of them. And the Waterboys and the Smiths were definitely the leaders of this what I look back at now is this kind of reactionary move back to rock scene. I mean, they were very consciously, you know, they had a song called Hang the DJ. They were not about disco. They were not about synths. They were not, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, they're coming out of Manchester. And, and um, Morrissey, Stephen Patrick Morrissey, their lead singer, you know, who's an ex-punker from a band called Ed Banger and the Nosebleeds, which <laughs> are as bad as the title. And then Bato says an interesting thing about it. He says, Morrissey was an oppositional rock star, a la the Velvet Underground or Jonathan Richmond of the Modern Lovers, except actually a star. So Morrissey, because of the environment in England at this point in time, because of rough trade records, because of their big distributorship, and because of all these media outlets, new British bands had a leg up and could get managers and recording opportunities and, and record label opportunities that hadn't been available to previous eras of oppositional rock stars like the Sex Pistols or the Velvet Underground. And, and so it was a weird thing with, with Morrissey biting the hand that feeds um, at all times. And then he gets into the mid-80s UK indie charts and points out this was a totally different music than the stuff that was on T MTV, that for most of the 80s, 4AD records dominated with acts like Cocteau Twins and This Mortal Coil. Also, uh, Anarcho-punk bands like Crass are still around. Unstranded New Bouton was pioneering industrial music at the time. So there was a lot of stuff going on in the British underground. It's not our main topic uh, for this uh, episode or this series. But he, he brings him in there and he lets him know, lets you know, the reader know that this scene was going on. And then he you know, definitely talks about John Peel pushing the Smiths hard. He said that was the equivalent of a knighthood in the 80s underground scene. And then he segues and, and talks about how Jeff Peel had pushed Frankie Goes to Hollywood, which is a group from Liverpool. And um, pretty legendary band. They were the first Liverpool band since Jerry and the Pacemakers to hit number one with their first three singles. Um, they had two vocalists, William Holly Johnson and Paul Leatherford, that were kind of like a dark and light complected dynamic duo who were openly, flamingly gay, just out as out could be. And then they had three instrumentalists with Peter Gill, Marco Tool, and Brian Nash come out with relaxed and, uh, you know, massive hit. Then he does kind of a swerve, though, uh, and introduces Trevor Horn. But Seth's telling me it's time to hear our third song. So let me play it before we hand it over to you to talk about Trevor Horn. And here we have Sweet Dreams by the Eurythmics.
And that was Annie Lennox singing for the Olympics doing Sweet Dreams, which, yeah, just magical, apocryphal stuff. And and I think you're right talking about the sinister sort of sound that, that the Eurythmics had. I don't know if it's minor chords or what, but there's definitely a, an aura of heaviness around them. I think maybe it's the big echoes they use or, you know, I don't know. But Frankie Goes to Hollywood is this totally different thing. Um, and it talks about Trevor Horn bringing them in. And Trevor Horn is the definitive guy of this phenomenon we've been discussing of older artists in the late 70s and early 80s who figured out how they could stay contemporary the police for example is the list they were all three in art rock bands before they chopped their hair off and dyed it blonde and became you know part of or nominally on the edge of the punk scene and and trevor horn with the buggles his partnership with Jeff Downs, you know, started out as sort of the definitive new wave band. I mean, they were the, their song video killed the radio stars. Famously the first video ever played on MTV. Although they were talking about TV, like uncle Milty and captain video versus the radio stars at the time, not talking about MTV and that kind of video star, but that's what it is. Then they take the weirdest career move of all time. When Jeff Downs and Trevor Horn actually joined. Yes for a few tours, which was still totally inexplicable to this day. But they they then hang around. They quit, yes, but they stay around. And Trevor Horn produces uh, the, the the owner of a Lonely Heart single and the album that went with it, which becomes, yes, his first, last, and only number one hit. He also, as I mentioned before, produced Lexicon of Love and Malcolm McLaren's Duck Rock album, which I think is kind of forgotten today but was conceptually a really important piece and looped in a bunch of stuff. He was interested in hip hop and African music. And, um, you know, I definitely picked Johnny Rotten's side in the Malcolm McLaurin versus the Sex Whistles fights, but I have to respect Malcolm mm. for, you know, being a big player. And then Jeff Downs formed his own record label, ZTT Records, and they're the only people willing to, sound, to sign Frankie Goes to Hollywood. And, uh, you know, they're working on Relax, have a track that the band had played on and when they trevor horn's just like this isn't happening let's start over erases the whole backing track re-records it without the band and has this <laughs> massive massive uh hit single and and you know frankie goes to hollywood also had the t-shirts which were the first thing that hit america frankie say relax i saw those shirts way before i heard the song how about you i you know i, I keep thinking of george michael didn't George Michael have a shirt that was kind of like that? And I mean, I know it didn't yeah, say had, Frankie Say Relax. Choose Life choose or what, life. you know. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was on the Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go video. And um, yeah. I think I probably saw that before I saw the Frankie shirts, actually. I don't think I heard Frankie until um, 84 and Brian De Palma's, um, it was a Brian De Palma movie. Um, and they, that, they used that music, you know, because he was a this is the guy that did scarface but he was the horror movie guy first and or a you know a thriller and um yeah i think it was called i want to say it was called body double but it may have been something like that but um it's got this whole voyeur thing and and uh he's talking about the one with Andy dickinson of, and the no it's the one that after, it's a couple yeah it's a couple movies after that oh you're one, right you're right one, that was um Melanie Griffith is in it, actually. Yeah, Melanie yeah, Griffith yeah. Melanie Griffith is bizarrely. And one of the women from uh, from from uh, Dallas or Dynasty. <laughs> I mean, it really weird. But that's the first time I heard that song. And then I started hearing it more in 85, which shows how, you know, maybe behind the curve I was at that point. Um, but that's that's when I, you know, I heard it on the, on the that, in that movie. And it yeah, was connected to a porn movie. That was the guy yeah. was actually shooting yeah. a porn film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was definitely Body Double, 1984. I was thinking Dress to Kill for 1980. Okay. But yeah, gotcha. yeah, yeah. Great movies. Yeah, absolutely. One of the the defining directors of this era. Um, also directed Phantom of the Paradise um, years earlier. Ab yes, sir. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, the, the classic. I yes, saw that in the theater. I saw that in the I saw that in the theater the two days before me and my my main man Kenny went and saw Jethro Tull in '75. 
we saw Phantom of the Paradise. Sorry, just wanted to get nice. that in there. <laughs> That's your rock and roll experience in a nutshell, right there. Um, there you go. It is. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the, the interesting thing to me about Trevor Horn in this uh, book and how Montas treats him is he, he quotes him talking about how much he hated punk. And he shows it, you know, with his later allegiance to Yes. And I think he was peripherally involved, or Jeff Downs, you know, his partner in the Buggles then goes on to form Asia, which we talked about uh, in the last two episodes, which are, you know, the definitive example of prog rockers figure out the 80s. Um, and yeah. you know that was Trevor Horn's kind of whole shtick was that he could modernize your sound and make a band like Yes, which wasn't even really. It's like they just had sort of a scrapyard's worth of ex Yes members, um, and once they got John Anderson back, then it was Yes. And so, yeah, you know, uh, very odd period. But um, do you remember the first time you noticed Frankie goes to Hollywood or? heard relax or i guess you just well, said that in, Brian in, did you see that frankie said t-shirts i did in the video and i found it i i think i saw the video i think but i think i i had i was i think it was 85 i that may be just my mind's eye but that's when i remember first seeing it and and finding it it's kind of a menacing song i thought that was my reaction to it at least and, yeah, and, yeah. I mean, I, I think some yeah. of that, in my case, it was definitely homophobic panic in part. Like, I was just like, are they really too. talking about yes. this? Is this really happening? Me like, too. it was so, <laughs> so in your face. Yeah, yeah. It's like this this episode from 1983 literally has just triggered our current homophobic and transphobic political moment, it seems like. it's. it's well, and think, um, think about it, Nate. This, this is when Reagan is ignoring AIDS. Yep, actively. This is when the AIDS yeah. epidemic, yes, and the AIDS epidemic has started, and he's um, not that presidents normally uh, ignore uh, epidemics or pandemics, hint, hint, but or or pretend it's bad for the PR that day. You know, <laughs> Reagan's bunch. They wanted, you know, they wanted, you know, you know, your PR, uh, you're a student of the of the black art. Um, they wanted to have a, every day have a good have some good PR, and you were never going to have good PR if you recognized that there was this really just incredibly awful disease that people were getting. Yeah, and yeah, you know, and we couldn't figure it out. No, and oh, and it was so deadly. But let's go ahead and hear it. This is Frankie goes to Hollywood. Relax. that was relaxed by frankie goes to hollywood one of their three uh number one singles that they opened their career with the first british band to do that on the uk charts since jerry and the pacemakers all the way back in 1963 so yeah and the fact that they were from liverpool there was definitely a sort of beatles uh i mean the beatles just loom over liverpool constantly and you know inescapable but frankie goes to hollywood was very not intimidated by that and they were very much doing their own thing and, and it's interesting you know in the techno roll series ryan harkness and i did a whole episode on the high energy movement which was the sound of the gay disco scene and later becomes in the early 80s and then becomes the sound of uk pop in the late 80s with kylie minow and everybody produced uh, by saw the great british production team of the 80s but yeah it was um painful to do that episode because it was about the scene at the heart of the AIDS epidemic and the hedonistic and devil may care lifestyle that a lot of people are engaging on at that point in time, you know, mixing anonymous sex with drugs, you know, no safe sex, just people. And we, people didn't know. I mean, this was a generation that had been raised with antibiotics and the birth control pill. The social consensus was, you know, sex is great. Have as much of it as you can. If if you 
you know, the worst case scenario is you get syphilis or gonorrhea and you can go get an yeah. antibiotic shot and clear that up. And then, and then mm-hmm. you know, AIDS completely, completely changed that game and kind of adds this homophobic undercurrent to this whole era. And I think is a factor in why some of these bands kind of fizzled out um, after an initial commercial opportunity in the States. Like Culture Club's follow-up album, I think I once had two hits I was aware of, but it, it just didn't match, you know, the overwhelming assault of their, of their initial wave of singles off that first album. And I yeah. don't know. Do you think the AIDS backlash like was a big factor in, in those groups fading relatively quickly? That is a, it's a really good question. And that's almost, I almost wonder because it was being ignored by mainstream. Um, they didn't catch on. I mean, you're, uh, you're the way you described the. Did you see the Frankie video first, or you said you were seeing the T-shirts? And I remember the I, video. I saw the uh, T-shirts at the mall, and I remember reading about them and the whole three number one hits in a row thing. But they definitely weren't playing "Relax" on the radio in Borger, Texas. I could tell you that. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, it was it was years before I actually heard that. I think. They, they, I remember them coming to um, High Alive Front Time. That was the a place that, uh, that the Turtles played at. So they weren't, they weren't a huge draw, but they were enough of a draw. But it's almost like it did evaporate after um, eighty four, eighty five for them. And you know, maybe, maybe the Culture Club and 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 Annie and they blew up a small hole in the firmament and got, got some things through. And then as usual, there was the, the reactionary reaction to it. Yeah. Yeah. There's always, if you're going to have a lash, you're going to have a backlash. And um, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. It feels like you're trapped in a TV sitcom that never ends. I mean, it's just this cycle that repeats itself over and over and over <laughs> again. Um, but yeah, but this, this is a fascinating chapter in this in the book i think he he was wise to do it early in the book because like he he points out 83 was the biggest year of the second british invasion more than 1984 um but this is just a big part of the recipe of what made 84 such an overwhelmingly great year for music and next week we'll come back we'll talk about another scene that had a massive impact on the 80s the hollywood glam scene so for ed leg i'm nate wilcox and we've been discussing michelangelo matos's can't slow down how 1984 became music's blockbuster year so thanks so much ed yep sounds good follow the let it roll podcast on twitter at let it Rollcast, and check out our website at let it roll thursday Nate continues the Three Kings of American Pop series with the second part of his Bing Crosby discussion with Gary Giddens. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at fantasy points. Fantasypoints.com code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 